0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. My name is Nathan Hill, and today, we are flipping this show on its head. Brady Josephson, who is normally your host, is in the hot seat today, and I'm actually going to ask him questions. Brady made a big announcement a couple weeks ago at our annual Nonprofit Innovation and Optimization Summit about a brand new initiative that he's leading called the Next After Institute. So today, you'll hear from Brady all about why we need new training in the online fundraising space, plus we'll get into some of the biggest takeaways from some brand new research that we've been conducting here at the Institute that has implications for your online giving experience, your donor cultivation, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy the episode. Brady, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, record this podcast with me and uh, sit down for this interview. Uh, Really
1: grateful. We're glad that you are here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I was saying earlier, it was nice to have you create the agenda. I just get to sit here and answer questions. This is great. Yeah, it totally changes my whole uh, role here. Yeah.
0: Don't often realize how much work goes into this. Uh, but I'm excited. I'm excited to hear, uh, I mean, obviously you and I talk all the time about a lot of these things we're going to dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's cool even just for me to think through, you know, different research that's going on and what are the implications of it and uh, how, you know, different online fundraising training can really make an impact on people. So yeah. that's kind of where I want to want to go. Uh, but let's start this conversation off. I just want to wanna know from you, What is the Next After Institute? You just announced this a few weeks ago publicly. I know we've kind of been shopping this around. Just tell us a little bit more about what it is. And uh, why to, why it exists?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've been working on for a long time, and in a lot of ways, it's it was kind of in development before even I joined Next After, right? I mean, uh, we at Next After work with generally large organizations through rapid experimentation, but we can only work with just you know a fraction of organizations. And if our mission is truly to decode what works in fundraising, make it accessible for nonprofits, or vision unleash generosity, we can't do that just you know. 10, 15, 20, 40 clients at a time. And so that's mm-hmm. really where Next After has been investing in like uh, research and creating content to try to equip nonprofits. And so the, the institute is really the formalization of that journey of basically saying we are going to intentionally focus, and me focused intentionally on how do we provide uh, data ba- backed resources and you know research-driven training. Uh, to provide more uh, hands-on opportunities for nonprofits to understand what they need to know today to raise uh, more funds online. And that's really what we're focused on doing is trying to fill what I see as a bit of a gap in the market to provide that level of depth of training for online specific marketing and fundraising. Yeah.
0: Well, you said one thing, I think you said the words research backed or data driven. I know is one we throw around a lot. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of something that sets us apart from other trainings, would you say?
1: Yeah, big time. And I think that's it. You know, there's a lot of really smart uh, people out there, and there's a lot of people that um, can maybe use case studies of one, but the advantage that we have is to literally look across dozens, if not hundreds, if not hopefully in the future, thousands of experiments where we can actually see patterns and see things like, this is what's really working right now in email fundraising, and when they're very fairly short time period be able to turn that around into practical training so it, it kind of solves two things one it's it's evidence-based it's not just what i like or this worked this one time or this works for charity water or whatever you know it's, <laughs> it's hopefully taking more breadth of in terms of what's actually working but then also speed to training like this is one of the problems with academia by the time something gets kind of vetted and verified and through the ringer and makes its way into curriculum like it's old Right. And digital is just moving mm. too quick. So we're really trying to narrow that gap between, you know, this kind of analysis of what's working and into training. And we're constantly updating our training for better for better or worse based on what yeah. we're learning uh, to try to narrow that gap as well. Yeah. So
0: I've recently deleted my Facebook app. But when I had my Facebook app <laughs> and I would get sucked in because they'd send me a notification and I get sucked in, I spend five minutes looking at nothing. Yeah. Uh, and then regret the past five minutes of my life, I would often see ads for, you know, different digital marketing training courses. And one person who has like the the silver bullet solution to find, you know, new contacts or you know, grow your sales or grow your revenue. What sets this apart from trainings like that? Where, what's, what's the difference?
1: We have many silver bullets. <laughs> no, um, again, like I, I'm not trying to disparage other people's training programs necessarily, but sure. you know, from my own experience, like studied nonprofit management, grad school, started at a small nonprofit where I was the first and only full-time employee and just like so much of what I had learned was useless uh, because we had no budget. We had to focus on digital. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't running a $100 million capital campaign. But then there wasn't a lot of actual like training out there. So you're just kind of wandering kind of in the darkness, hoping that you're you're making sense or hoping that it's working. <laughs> and so really, I think the, the the fact that it's you know data backed is is obviously a, a big thing. but also I, I think we we try to take a pretty holistic, approach, because there really are no silver bullets in terms of truly growing generosity. It's about doing really good work over and over and over and over and over again. And that's really what we practice and preach. And there has been way too much silver bullet reliance in our space, right? We'll kind of jump from no innovation to just... We're all in on Snapchat or some kind of new technology Mm -hmm. or we think the next CRM will solve all of our problems. And we really haven't addressed some of the fundamental challenges where we don't really understand our donors well enough or how to communicate with them. And we can do that so much better and easier on the web. It's so much easier to get that information and learn quicker. Yeah.
0: Now I know my my experience in the nonprofit space isn't necessarily like representative of of everyone's but I think you know just in conversations I've had with people it's a pretty common experience that you know we get pretty stuck in our ways of doing the same things over yeah, and over again and and I know that when I was you know working in marketing at an at an organization, I would often just you know you google different email strategies and things like that and you're really trying to to pluck different uh different tactics and different ideas and different takeaways from, you know, research that's been done in a lot of different other, you know, for-profit fields. And it's kind of hard to, you know, tie that back to nonprofit and tie that back to fundraising and how it can actually apply. So that's been kind of one thing I've been excited about around this institute is to actually take some of these ideas that even exist in in the for-profit space in some ways, and bring that into the nonprofit space and really make some some connections to fundraising.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, a lot of times people say that our workshops and our training are best practice, but – best practice is a bit of you know, a swear word for us. So I, I like to think about it as like a better baseline, right? So instead of kind of Googling random stuff or not knowing whether it's working, I mean, not saying that the stuff that we teach or what we provide will work for everyone all the time, but we have sure. a decent body of evidence before it even makes its way into training. And then especially since we've been doing these workshops, it's so cool to have people come up at workshop after workshop or webinar after webinar just saying things like, hey, we actually started using this and we've seen huge increase in engagement." or or donations and so I think there's quite a bit of validation behind what we're saying and it's really just a better starting point like if you don't know where to start or you're looking for what to do for your emails or donation pages like here's where we suggest you start based on a lot of experience and, and research and hopefully it's just a better starting point but then it still has to be about testing and curiosity and all that kind of stuff it's not just because you start doing things the way that we teach like it's game over it's really just a better starting point or a better baseline sure
0: and that's yeah, that's where the the evidence backed resources, the data driven stuff, really comes into play. Um, you know, let we, we, we talk a lot about you know what we think makes this training really cool, but I think one of the, one of my favorite things about it is that we always kind of kind of approach the, the research and the learnings from a place of humility, saying you know, we really don't know the answer, the silver bullet solution. Mm-hmm. But we're looking at the data, we're looking at the research to try to figure out what are the, what are some of the common threads that can lead us to you know the next step forward. And I love that that's kind of baked into sort of everything that that's produced by the institute.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely it. And and I think the other cool things you know, we do like original research studies, and I know we'll talk about some of those too. But that's really like understanding the gaps in the marketplace and looking for ideas too, right? So if we if we know that you know, for example, writing very plain text style emails in terms of tone and design typically works all the time for most nonprofits mm. when it comes to fundraising emails. But then we'll do a, a study where we actually look and analyze emails and see that very few organizations are sending from a person or having a stripped down design. So we know that that's a huge opportunity. So then we focus a lot on it in our training. So it's not just what data is telling us, but we're also trying to assess like what our organization's not doing that they should. But then we also yeah. see some cool ideas and just when you start making donations to hundreds of organizations or tracking their emails, just like, ooh, look at how they did this welcome series or, uh, you know, something that I've been really interested in lately is like surveys. Look at how these organizations are using surveys and what questions are they asking mm. specifically and when. And, you know, it's something that I haven't spent a lot of time doing. I know we do a lot with our clients, but you know it's a really interesting area and it can lead down this next stream of communication so it's also it's not just like we're doing only proven stuff we're also trying to be a little bit on the forward side of things and see like hey here's something to you know consider or something to try that it's not proven yeah. yet but here's some good kind of rationale behind it and here's what some other organizations are doing and we're trying to weave that into what we teach as well
0: yeah well, I think that's a good segue to go, you know, kind of where I wanted to go next and, and ask you about is there's a couple brand new research studies that that we've just put out. You did pretty much all of the data analysis for it in terms of, you know, looking at the data that we collected, trying to find, you know, where are those gaps? What are the commonalities? What are the trends? Different things like that. So one of those is uh, the State of Nonprofit Donation Pages, uh, sponsored by Raise Donors. I want to ask you just a really just broadly, what are some of your biggest takeaways from that research? And can you tell us a little bit about the process and what you're trying to look for and study?
1: Yeah, sure. So, a bit about the process. Um, we were looking at just the online giving experience of the main or general donation page. So, uh, in the end, we completed, I think, 203 donations to nonprofits across 12 verticals, but we just started on the homepage and tried to find the easiest, quickest way to donate. And so, for all these studies, we're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the donor, and in this case we're trying to say, you know, I'm constantly I'm of a a motivated donor of sorts. I've maybe heard about this organization, or uh, I saw them on the radio, or maybe I saw something on Facebook and forgot about them, and then I typed their name into Google and then ended up on their homepage. You know, this is how a lot of people end up going to the main general Mm -hmm. donation page. So we tried to put ourselves in those shoes. And then as we went throughout, uh, as we went through the giving process, we uh, had like pretty uh, objective yes, no, type questions for 27 different questions. A couple of them are subjective, like was this strong or weak, especially around value proposition that we'll talk about. Sure. But we had 27 questions that we answered and then five on the thank you page. And then we used that as a basis for the data analysis. And then for the scoring, we actually tried to attribute positive or negative points based on what our research suggests is something that helps or hurts conversion. So we could actually get to kind of a scoring number or metric. So that's kind hmm. of the, the methodology that we did. And really trying to figure out, you know, the, the main donation page, according to MNR's benchmarks, converts at about 17 percent, which means 83 percent of people. Come to that page With some kind of intent Or desire to give Otherwise they wouldn't Click that button Or end up on that page But do right. not give And so just think about The implications of us Moving as a, as a sector From just like 17 to 18 percent You know Just like it's <laughs> It's massive Thinking about how much More money we could raise just by optimizing and improving just that one main general donation page. And so that's really right. what we were trying to do is uncover what our organization's doing and then also kind of marry that up with some of the research that we've done to see what works and kind of narrow that gap. So that's really what the donations page study was about.
0: Yeah, and there's some really, really interesting things in there and I want to kind of dive into a few of them. One, one quote that I pulled out the three out of four nonprofits didn't communicate anything around why someone should make a recurring gift during the one-time donation flow. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, is it important to really focus on recurring giving during a one-time donation process? Are there ways to do that or are there ways to not do that?
1: Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I've I have plenty of thoughts on the subject of recurring. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of a, a continual area of research for us. That we really started last year, being much much more intentional on recurring with the study we did with Salesforce on the state of nonprofit recurring giving uh, we like we like the name our studies pretty similar <laughs> The state of, yeah, state of something, topic. Um, but we saw something similar there, and then also when I did a study in Canada, we saw the same type of thing it's pretty much the same ratio in terms of organizations communicating in some way, not even like you know crazy ways, just in some way trying to nudge or hint or state clearly why someone should make a recurring gift, and what's where I kind of see where organizations are maybe coming from is you know, you're know, you trying to address uh, donor motivation and f- not all donors are coming to a donation page looking to set up a subscription or a recurring gift. Now, increasingly they are. As we look at kind of um, recurring giving trends, it continues to grow year after year, especially on the digital yeah. side. And where we've started to see more people sign up uh, in, as first time donors, as recurring donors, than ever before. And a lot of this is, right, is this subscription e commerce market kind of bleed over, I think, to nonprofits where more people are like, oh, yeah, I, I get my groceries on subscription. Why wouldn't I give my charity to my <laughs> charity on subscription? So I think now more than ever, we actually have an opportunity to communicate. Why it is, clearly. So it's partly a function of strategy in the U.S. in particular. Not nearly enough emphasis is placed on recurring giving, even though recurring donors work five to ten times more over their lifetime compared to one-time donors. So focusing on recurring giving is even more important for small and medium-sized nonprofits who don't have all of the marketing automation, data analysis, and people to work on these kind of conversion or upgrade strategies like you would for the most part you would way much rather have one recurring than kind of five to ten one-time donors but you go Mm -hmm. through the one-time giving flow And there's no reason why anyone should ever set up a recurring gift unless you are so interested in that organization and making a recurring gift that you'd check that little box. So at one level, it's not surprising in terms of where tools are and where strategy's been. But on the other side, it's really surprising knowing how much of the market is interested in it, how valuable it is to nonprofits, that we're still not doing anything. Right. right? So some of the things that we've seen is – defaulting to monthly. Now, this is a little tricky. It depends kind of from what we've seen. It depends how you do it. If you just have a checkbox that's pre-checked, We've seen that potentially that can actually decrease giving and decrease the likelihood of recurring because there's something with checkboxes where people are like, whoa, you know, (laughs) chill out, bro. (laughs) Like, I haven't made that decision for myself. Whereas if we can kind of default in a tab situation, uh, uh, an experiment that we validated showed an increase in recurring and no difference in one time and saw that with a few organizations like WWF, for example, defaulted to monthly in a tabbed approach. So this is what's cool on the research side. If we see something that we validate and then you see it in the market, particularly Particularly with large organizations that we know are doing some testing then say, Hey, maybe there's something in it, but like, that's one way. And then people can easily just say, Oh no, I'd rather give one time. Or there's little things like nudges. You know, we had someone from Sierra club on this very podcast talking about how they use a little arrow nudge, just kind of Pointing to the recurring box and saying they use hmm. social proof figures as well to say you know ninety three thousand other people have joined the recurring giving program just kind of subtly nodding like if you don't you're missing out so like <laughs> even just those little subtle things uh, the ACLU has a little nudge arrow with you know this is the best way to protect civil liberties just something that makes people pause and think otherwise if there's no uh, nothing to make them pause then there's nothing to make them you know, choose to upgrade right in the moment. So those are just a few things right. that we've seen either in the in the market or in our own research that has worked.
0: That's interesting. And I know that you can go deep on recurring giving and we have a whole study there we can dive into, yeah. but uh, I want to cover just a few other yeah. Sorry, I'll, points I'll be I more saw succinct. in the study that are... <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It's uh, great. Another thing that I saw in this study is that certain verticals tend to be better at communicating their value proposition or, or why someone should give on their donation page specifically. Do you have any thoughts as to why, you know, the we saw that the, the faith-based groups, public policy groups are the two highest scoring in terms of giving reasons on their donation pages to why someone should give? Any ideas as to why they are excelling in that area and then groups, you know, in the, the areas of like Animal activism, uh, environment, and public media seem to be at the bottom end. Any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, the environment one was a little interesting because they that vertical normally scores uh, higher. but uh, I, I Yeah, I was surprised to see that. We'll talk about that in, in a second. But what's interesting too, right, when we do value proposition scoring from past studies in Canada and the U.S., we do see that often faith-based public policy groups score high in the value proposition. And I think it's, it's around two things maybe. Um, One, when it comes to making, like, a strong value proposition, especially around fundraising, giving someone something to fight for or fight against and really, like, a reason for them to give and give today is really, really important. Mm. And so I think, generally speaking, like, faith-based groups uh, are – well, often, especially in the U.S., they take a pretty, you know, stance, like – fighting for a particular issue or a subject or a topic, or even just fighting for yeah. your beliefs, kind of, they they have this great advantage of being able to speak clearly to kind of shared beliefs, which is a little bit harder for some organizations, like an environmental organization, in theory, everyone who gives cares about the environment, but their deeper seated beliefs and values could really be all over the place. Whereas, right. you know, if you're a faith-based ministry working in one area, you can kind of make... More direct <laughs> assumptions about what they actually believe. Otherwise, they wouldn't be to you. So I think that – and same thing, public policy, right? There's normally yeah. very clear stances on issues or economy or whatever it might be, and they can just pretty clearly address those. So it's, I think it's a function of kind of this belief, something to fight for against, and then also clarity. They just have this luxury to be a lot more clear. And so I think some environment groups, it's tough. Like, man, there's, you know, rainforests are burning. There's climate change. There's, you know, ice caps melting. Like, it's such a huge issue. It's all over the globe. It can become overwhelming and too vague or too broad. And so I think that that's a challenge for some environment groups and uh, a lot of the public media groups, too. I mean, we included quite a few PBS stations. Um, I think they struggle from a different area of just kind of like, they don't have a super strong value proposition. Like why is public media really needed other than, you know, PBS is awesome, you know? So I think Mm -hmm. they kind of skewed public media a little bit, but I think again, it's the values, uh, fight for against and clarity that some of those verticals can, can do more easily than others. Right. Right.
0: Well, for PBS, I mean, their value proposition is for me is, uh, my toddler loved Daniel Tiger. So we got to keep that
1: going. Every, every time I talk to them I'm like, man, you guys kids, your kid stuff is the best. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's so good. It absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And, and as we, you know, we released a benchmark study a few months ago, I mean, beginning of the summer. And, uh, I had some similar thoughts just looking at, you know, why, why are some types of groups performing well in certain categories, like in, in terms of like cultivation or like engagement, but then performing maybe lower on the value proposition side of things and vice versa. And, uh, I think it's easy to sort of pigeonhole yourself sometimes, and just say like, "Well, that's we meet the the baseline of those that are in our sector and in our vertical, so we're fine." But I think it's really cool to go through this practice of understand of looking at you know other types of groups that maybe are doing something's better or something's worse, and what can we learn from these other groups to try to lift the benchmark across the board. So that's why I'm just kind of always curious about you know how are different verticals, uh, or what's what's leading to different levels of performance across different verticals.
1: Yeah. So I think it's interesting. Yeah, and especially when you see f- pa- patterns across studies, that's what's really interesting. Right. Yeah,
0: and the more of these we do, we start to see we see some of those take shape, yeah, which is sure. interesting. One that we have seen consistently, kind of in every area, is this idea of friction mm-hmm. and how much friction comes into play in the in the online giving experience. And that was the case in this study too. Uh, there's a quote that just says, "There's too much friction for donors to deal with make for donors to deal with when they're making a donation." Just period. What are some of the common sources of friction that someone is running into uh, as you observe them in this study?
1: yeah uh, I mean frictions you know anything that really slows down or even halts <clears throat> a giving process that can more easily be removed and so that's something that is often one of the easiest ways to improve a giving experience is just remove friction uh, it's kind of like the lowest hanging fruit so um, a few things that we saw, one, like just distractions, just navigation links in the header and the footer, um, other ways to give links on the donation page. These are all just distracting links. Again, and when someone has reached this donation page, they've expressed their interest to give to your organization. Now, is this really the time where you want them to look at, you know, your blog or find you on Facebook or like none of that stuff is really relevant <laughs> You you don't want that, but neither do they in the flow, right? Um, if they don't find what they're looking for, they can click back, or they can click X or something, <laughs> right? So this uh, there's this bit of this idea like oh no, but what if what if they're not ready or what if they don't have it? Let's provide these extra links, or sometimes it's just pure tool template stuff with navigation that we can remove that. And it's a similar thing on, on decision friction, where we actually m- make donors make quite a few decisions along the way. Like, do I want to give to this organization? How much? Is it one time or recurring? Is it tribute? Which fund? Right? There's, there's quite a few decisions to make along the way. And some organizations yeah. are making it even harder by asking more information, right? Like, how did you hear about us? Or, you know, which of these 18 different, you know, designation funds do you want to give to? And, and often there's not a lot of criteria around it or context, So the donor's kind of like, I don't know, I think I want to do this. And it's pretty classic where like we know our funds. We know how that works on the back end and ties into our accounting, but – Putting your shoe, putting yourselves in the shoes of especially a newer or more casual donor, they don't know that stuff. They don't know what we know, and so that's one of the things we really tried to shine a light on: is like look at this giving experience from someone else's perspective and how many confusing decisions we actually ask them to make. So just like simplifying the decision making process, highlighting one particular fund. Use the example in child sponsorship instead of rows and rows of three kids. Just highlight one kid first, and then they can always (laughs) do rows and rows and kids. And that had a fourteen percent increase in recurring donor conversion or child sponsors. And like we can it's do amazing. the same type of thing when it comes to decisions. So that's one thing. And then required forms is another. I think uh, 40% of nonprofits required non-essential information to be captured. So things like Mr. or Mrs. Uh, requiring a phone number, like How did you hear about us? All those questions aren't necessarily in and of themselves bad or wrong. The big thing is required. Sometimes those things can be optional. Sometimes we should capture that information later, not in a donation sequence. But the more things that we make required, it's more work, but the more people's sense of kind of like, why do you need this information goes up? And then they're more likely to abandon the process. So those are some pretty easy friction things that almost any organization can remove. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for going through that. There's so much more in this study. Uh, I have a couple of other questions listed here, but we're going to move on to uh, email cultivation. But if you want to dive into uh, all, the, all the things that we've learned from this donation page study, uh, you can find out more at stateofdonationpages.com. But Brady, let's jump to email cultivation because that's the most recent one uh, that we've just released uh, in partnership with Kindful. So again, walk us through the process of this study. What was kind of the thought going into, into it? What were you hoping to learn?
1: Yeah. So this one was even, you know, we're donation pages. We have quite a bit of research and evidence around what works or what doesn't. Kind of cultivation has always been a bit of a gray area, not just for us, but I think the space. Like we all kind of know, yes, of course, we should be cultivating donors and communication important. but it's been really hard to actually draw the uh, a direct link between cultivation mm-hmm. and engagement or cultivation and return on investment. And so this is really, instead of kind of finding gaps in the market. This is a little bit more exploratory for us as an institute, us with our clients, but also the space to see how are organizations actually welcoming and cultivating donors in the first 45 days. So we focused on the first 45 days because what we've seen with data from like Classy, for example, where the, the, the period where people are most likely, after making a one-time gift, to make a second gift or a recurring gift, other than uh, annual or year-end, is really in the first month or so, basically, of becoming Mm -hmm. a donor. We see the same type of things with email engagement, like a welcome series email are some of the most open, read, and engaged emails you will ever send People will ever read Right Like Which makes sense Because when people give When they sign up for emails Like they are raising their hand Saying I am engaged So they're more receptive And open Whereas the more time goes on The more chance there is To just get like Lost in the inbox They kind of forget Who you are So there's a real opportunity right. To do cultivation And engagement sooner uh, so that was part of it also we couldn 't just do a study that looked at like three hundred and sixty five days It would take forever, <laughs> so we had to put a <laughs> put a cap on it. but basically, we became an email subscriber, homepage signed up for email easiest way possible, and then donor homepage made a twenty dollar donation separate personas though so separate names, separate emails because we wanted to see how the experience was different or not between those two types of people over these forty five days so that was kind of the we w- really wanted to learn more about how do we drive lifetime value and engagement using communications and that's kind of our yeah. methodology to to come up with some ideas and get a sense of what organizations were doing
0: well there's so many different like little observations in this study but the the overarching one that kind of terrifies me every time i read it is is this that when we started this research there were 253 organizations on the list that we we're going through right mm-hmm but by the end of it as you were getting into the into the weeds of comparing subscribers communication versus donor communication there were really only 122 where we were fully able to to donate and sign up for emails and actually get communication
1: as each different persona what what happened <laughs> well we don't know 100% what actually happened or where the breakdown was but again like that's not something we sought out to study it was when we went to do the final cohort analysis was like, holy smokes, this is crazy. So it it took a more prominent role because you can't cultivate someone if you're not getting the information, right? Or the donor experience, like- how do you engage if they're getting nothing? So, you know, the big thing was like, test your freaking forms. Like, something is broken. <laughs> so, it could be a broken form. Uh, I mean, sometimes it was partly like website design where it was impossible to find where to give or where to yeah. sign up. And again, we tried yeah. to put ourselves in the shoes of a donor. Like, we're not going to spend 30 minutes trying to sign up for your newsletter. Like, <laughs> if, and, we navigate websites quite a bit, so we're an above-average user. Like, if we can't find it yeah. in, like, five minutes, then forget it, you know? So that was part of it. Right. There were some broken forms, for sure, where we just could not complete, you know, some technical malfunctions and things out of date. And then I think a lot of it is more, like, brokenness behind the scenes, uh, systems and process where one tool's not talking to another, or it's a very manual system and something got lost, and mm-hmm. I mean... At one level, this is super surprising, but on another level, we've seen this every time where donation pages don't work, forms aren't working, but even clients. I mean, we'll work with clients sometimes, do a data analysis and find out, like, you actually haven't been sending emails to 500,000 people because you never took <laughs> them out of your welcome series. You know, like large, right. sophisticated organizations. Like, there's human yeah. error in so much of this. So that's, that's a lot of what's going on. But yeah, that was, it, was, it was pretty sad and pretty surprising, too. Right.
0: Well, so even of those 122, where you are able to make direct comparisons? There's some interesting observations. One that actually kind of went the opposite way of how I thought it would is this: donors receive 35 percent fewer cultivation emails than just your main email subscriber. I would have assumed that that most organizations would spend more effort on you know ongoing cultivation of an existing donor, but that's not the case. Why do you th- why do you think
1: that? Subscribers receive more cultivation than donors what 's going on there yeah so there's there 's a few possible things going in on. so one we, we classified each email that we received, two thousand five hundred and eighty nine emails as cultivation, solicitation, or confirmation. And uh, we did that using Mechanical Turk, and three separate kind of analysts scored them that way. And then we tried to do subclassification. as like, was this a newsletter or a blog or a digest? So, one, sometimes it was confusing to know, was this really a cultivation piece or was this really a Mm -hmm. solicitation piece? So I do want to mention that. Like, there is a subjective analysis. We tried to have a pretty objective approach to it. But once you start looking at emails, like, some of them… Very much like half cultivation, half solicitation, and like how do you score? (laughs) So there is an element of that in here, and that is one of the key takeaways was we need to do a better job at being very clear. Like what's the purpose of this email, and what are we asking people to do, and let's not mix and match these things too much. Right. So a few things – Yeah, because I could – Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I could see that going kind of either way for for just your your casual – donor who's receiving the communication maybe you see the cultivation stuff at the top of it and think it's interesting or maybe you see you get to the bottom and you see that there's a donation ask and then you assume oh they just want more of my money and then it's dismissed i
1: think that's one of the biggest things i mean even oftentimes people use email templates for even the newsletter that has like a donate button in the top right corner or something i know that was often preached you know always have a donate button in the email yeah but I personally don't think that's a great approach because think about it from the donor's perspective. You open up this email, which is really a cultivation, and one of the first things they see is a big donate button. How how do they feel like they're not being asked for money even though that's not the point? So right. the idea is like, well, they should be able to make a click and donate at any time. And part of it's like, well, A, what's the point of the email? And B, let's give our donors a little bit of credit in terms of <laughs> their ability to use the freaking internet, right? Like <laughs> if they really want to give, they know where your website is. There's a link to your website. They're on the blog, but like they'll find a way to make a donation. So yeah, I, I think that is, is very problematic. So all that to say, there is an element of that too in terms of the scoring of like what's cultivation, what's solicitation. But I think one thing is, uh, I mean, what we've seen in a few examples, um, donors get removed from some emails in, in kind of a welcome series. Mm. And so maybe in those first few emails or first 14 days, maybe there was a lot of cultivation emails that they just didn't receive because they were being thanked for their donation. So they were, it looked like they were more likely to be removed from things. Sometimes they miss solicitation, but sometimes they miss cultivation. Uh, yeah. I know there was a few organizations where when we signed up, um to for email we we clicked we tried to check as many boxes that made sense for like an engaged donor, and so some of them were almost like daily kind of readings or like very frequent cultivation whereas on the donor' side we either didn 't have that option right it was just kind of we got added to the general list so some of them just structurally are by default we're sending huge volumes of cultivation daily emails or weekly emails that the donor yeah. wouldn't get, so that kind of skewed a bit of the data as well. So there's a there's yeah. a few of those things that again like in aggregate it's really hard to identify that, but just going through the inbox, I know that I've seen that a few times. So those are a, are a few reasons but i think the the longer term reason or the bigger bigger picture is that there's just kind of a lack of a longer term strategy in terms of how to cultivate donors again we we saw this a little last year in the recurring giving study where it looks like in the first month or the short term there was a strategy to thank and kind of more of the stewardship side of things but then as time gone on it was kind of like well, we're we're not entirely sure what to do with with donors now Um, so I think that happens a little bit where people are like, well, we don't want to just keep, you know, sending this same content to donors because they're giving, but then they often don't get anything. So I think there is a bit of a flawed long-term strategy there as well. So there's a few different factors going in. Sure.
0: Yeah. And some of that touches on the next question I had here for you, but you know, just, I actually just saw this in my most recent pass through the book. I've read it probably three or four times now, maybe more than that. (laughs) But I just kind of realized as looking at some of the charts, the subscribers seem to get a much heavier dose of just like blogs and newsletters and like, that's it. Whereas donors seem to get maybe a little bit more variety of different types of cultivation content going on. And that's that could be newsletters and blogs for sure. It could be surveys. It could be opportunities to volunteer. Is there an intentional strategy going on here? Do you think that's maybe a better approach to have, you know, all these different types of content offers and things like that going on? Should that be done on the subscriber side too? Is one better than the other? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, again, we're we're still kind of exploring the space. I think that thing that I mentioned earlier with like sometimes people have um, email offers or like, hey, sign up for the weekly digest of something and you'll opt into that. Yeah. Whereas when you're a donor, you don't opt into that. So that is partly what we were opting into was... Right. kind of newsletter style, more regular. And then on the donor side, we don't have that. So even that in itself is interesting. And I know one of the examples we used uh, from Food for the Hungry is, um, I think email two was a survey to the email subscriber, kind of what do you care about and kind of getting at preferences. And the donor didn't have a direct survey only. They had a little survey maybe in the thank you email, but it wasn't just we want to mm-hmm. hear from you. So sometimes the donor doesn't have as much control over the types of content that they want to receive, whereas the subscriber yeah. does. Now- Maybe I don't think either should be asked that question until they're a ways into their experience to know what emails they want or not. But that's a different subject. Sure. So there's some of that. <laughs> I mean, subclassification is even trickier than uh, primary classification. Like, was this a newsletter or a blog? Focus on a blog. Like, OK, was this a one-time ask or a recurring ask? Like, the subclassification was even trickier. So there's an element of that in there. But I do think uh, in terms of, like, well, what do we do about it? I think having more varied communication is important for both donors and subscribers, and especially action-oriented. What we found for both donors, but especially subscribers, you're right. I think it was like 72 74% of all communication was just kind of, here's something to read. Whereas here's here's an offer, like an ebook or a download. Here's a survey for you to take. Here's a way to get involved. Here's a volunteer opportunity. Like if our cultivation strategy for email subscribers is just more crap to read or stuff to read, even if it's good stuff to Mm -hmm. read, it's hard to lead them and narrow that gap between becoming a donor. Whereas if we provide more action or value-oriented content, even having the option to do that in theory should lead them to become uh, donors. So I think we need more action-oriented content for each but especially what we've seen, there's a huge opportunity for email subscribers to do more value or action-oriented content. Yeah.
0: Well, so at the end of this study, there's a bunch of different case studies kind of exploring some of these different strategies that have been put to the test and trying to show you know, what works and what doesn't. Uh, granted, there's a whole lot more testing uh, that needs to be done on some of these specific ideas to really say definitively, you should do this and you should not do this. But one of the most interesting case studies that's in there is the very last one. I think it's with Goodwill of Greater Washington. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you want to talk about that case study a little bit? Because I thought it was fascinating. They're starting to take, you know, some of these cultivation practices beyond just the typical like email subscribers and donors, but into other aspects of their organization.
1: Yeah. So this study, which won a Neo Award, for the record. Oh yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting for for a few reasons. Um, one, it was really focused on uh, purchasers, right? So people who actually bought stuff at a goodwill. So it wasn't necessarily just people making donations, but it's people who bought stuff at a goodwill. And in theory, are actually further away from kind of the mission. Like a, they probably mm-hmm. shop there because they care about goodwill. But really, the theory is at least that they're more shoppers. They're not going out of the way to become donors. And obviously, sometimes they do both. But the study really looked at, Um, kind of follow on communication, particularly around a thanks to these types of purchasers. Um, And so they're trying to say, okay, what happens afterwards? And what if we just started thanking, but then also three different types of thanks. One was kind of the general thanks. Here's what your purchase helps do. Number two was kind of thanks. Here's what your purchase helps do, but a specific a more tangible example of how lives are being changed through kind of your Mm -hmm. purchase. And the third one had both of those elements, but then also focused on the collective kind of, you know, all Washingtonians uh, as part of goodwill are making this change in their communities. So something that kind of was trying to bring in the collective. And what's interesting is that they found that in all cases, the thank you messaging helped increase someone's uh, identification or positive experience of the brand over time. So just kind of, Saying thank you in in a good way – all three of those I think are good Um, – helped increase people's uh, kind of affinity. Whereas in in the past when they surveyed purchasers without these thank yous, they almost had a negative perception of kind of what was going on in their uh, interaction with the organization. So by thanking them and tying their purchase into impact – they turned it into a positive thing, which was interesting. But then also that treatment too, that's talked very specifically about the impacts of, uh, kind of like one person of sorts. Um, had improve, improved downstream value, increased their likelihood to actually make purchases again in the future and actually increased yeah. the lifetime value of that person more so than the collective and more so than just kind of the, the normal thanks, which again is interesting because we've seen that type of thing being very clear and being very specific and actually not focusing on the collective, tying it more directly to the individual has worked in many other cases in fundraising when we introduce the collective there's this like this uh, diffusion of responsibility it feels like my thing's maybe not as important or there's other people to do it whereas we're very clear like your purchase means that you know sue is able yeah. to get a job it means more to us and it's more impactful so like within this there's a, a few really interesting things like saying thanks saying thanks immediately how we say thanks how it all has an impact in terms of the relationship with an organization as well as downstream value. So I think there's a lot of interesting right. stuff in that case study. Yeah.
0: And I got I got a chance to sit down with um, a couple of people from Goodwill and Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy who had partnered with Goodwill on this project. And know uh, it, it was just cool to talk to them about it and hear some of the thought behind it. You know, the people that are just like a casual shopper at Goodwill. I mean, from time to time, I'll randomly stop by the, the Goodwill and, you know, see what they have. And sometimes there's like some really cool finds and, and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, but I I didn't understand the full depth of all that Goodwill does. And so we talk about this idea often, but giving people more of an opportunity to ex- experience in a kind of a real way, you know, the value, of, the value proposition of your organization mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, you as a, even in this maybe fringe type of interaction with the organization are actually participating in, you know, this great work that we're doing. And so that's just like a, a little way to, to use cultivation efforts to kind of bring someone into the the larger, I guess, collective of, you know, how we're making an impact.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's an interesting study for sure. Yeah.
0: So there's, there's lots, lots more, uh, case studies in there to dig into. There's lots more observations and insights from, you know, this analysis that we did of, of all these organizations and subscriber cultivation, donor cultivation. Uh, if you listen or want to dig in more, uh, you can find that study at cultivating donors.com and get the whole report there. Brady, we could go on and on about all the different research opportunities that there are and things that we're trying to study and things that we wish we could learn or want to <laughs> learn and all of that. Uh, but what can people expect next from Next After Institute?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, our focus on research isn't going anywhere. We're developing our 2020 research plan right now. Um, the big thing that we're focused on, and like the real unique part of the announcement, really was taking a lot of our training, which we've largely done offline and in person. Uh, And putting it online through these courses So we've had free courses in the past But we're making them all certification Eligible Uh, We've produced a new course with Amy Harrison Who's awesome, she's at Neo again Is always a top rated speaker on copywriting So to dive deeper in copywriting Get certified there So we will be producing new courses Both kind of like anchor courses And ancillary courses And so hopefully uh, this kind of online, on-demand learning with quizzes and certification exams is appealing to people. And it's a way to kind of scale the training because, again, people are busy. They can't always attend in person. But this is a way where you can log on, take these courses, um, all the new courses, and some we reshoot. They're bite-sized segments, right? So it can be a resource like, what did Amy say about landing page copy? Log in, ding, ding, ding. What, rewatch the seven minutes go write your landing page that's really what we're trying to yeah. do so th- I think that's what's most exciting we're getting it off the ground and then tied to that is a membership model so we're actually you know people can buy courses one off or they can be a member and access all this stuff as well as some behind the scenes webinars and things like that for being a member so courses is going to be a big focus and that's somewhat new whereas the research and, and uh, things that we've done is, is going to continue
0: very cool very cool one other uh, area we're starting to do a little bit more research into that's coming your way very soon is year end. Mm-hmm. So I've actually spent the past couple of days just you know deep in about eight thousand emails <laughs> from twenty eighteen, trying to you know figure out what's good, what's bad, what can we learn from, what are some of those gaps you know that we can use to try to get our emails to you know we say this phrase all the time, but cut through the clutter yeah. of the donors' inbox and actually reach your donors in one of the craziest, most hectic times of of the whole year so i won't uh I won't spoil everything but a few quick little uh, insights that I found that I've thought are interesting out of two hundred forty three organizations that we've analyzed in this process only fifty eight percent of them actually sent an email on Giving Tuesday last year hmm. which is fascinating to me um, I know obviously giving Tuesday is growing year after year after year after year um, but yeah that's just a little bit over half, which is kind of kind of interesting hmm. uh, so for half of organizations there's opportunity there. Uh, and then even, this is shocking, even fewer, 52% of these organizations actually emailed their supporters on December 31st, wow. which is the biggest giving day of the entire year. So uh, for half of organizations, there's kind of some missed opportunity there. So we'll be digging into some more uh, details of, you know, what we're finding in this year-end research. You can stay tuned with all that stuff. We've got a, a monthly webinar series, the whole year-end season, plus a, a bunch of other free resources too at nextafter.com slash year-end. You can find that all there. Brady, if someone wants to get connected to Next After Institute or wants to sign up for courses and become a, a member for the
1: first time, where can they go? Yeah, awesome. Hopefully they do. Uh, the easiest place is to go to nextafter.com slash institute. Uh, That's where you can see all the different links to in-person training and online courses and latest research. It's kind of our our main landing page with kind of everything. But membership specifically, uh, you can go to nextafter.com slash membership and look at the different tiers from online courses only, online courses and in-person workshops. Or even the top tier there is uh, online courses, in-person workshops, and a Neo ticket. So kind of bundling some in-person experiences as well too to get a pretty good deal, I think, uh, in terms of what's being offered. So slash institute slash membership nextafter.com. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much, Brady, for taking some time to uh, walk us through the institute and what's coming up next and all this research that's really going on. I think it's going to be really, really helpful for people. And uh, yeah, grateful for you and all the work that you're you're doing to invest in this space.
1: Yeah, yeah, you as well, Nathan. <laughs> you're a huge part of what we're <laughs> thanks, doing Brady. at the institute. So let's just like compliment each other here. But <laughs> sounds good. I wasn't I wasn't trying to fish for a compliment, well, but I'll, I'll take all it. All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, thanks so much.
1: Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to The Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search The Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. NextAfter is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kachuriak and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.